0: Well, as I mentioned, I have been preaching on why the doctrines of grace matter. And I want to remind you that if you haven't listened to the sermons on the doctrines of grace, they can be found online if you need to catch up on maybe a week that you missed or just need to be reminded of these uh, doctrines that we call the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of sovereign grace. You can find those there. Uh, It is difficult for me to actually preach this many sermons on what are really application rather than specific texts and exposition. As you know, I preach expositionally through books of the Bible and I preach through the book of Hebrews and God willing next I plan to preach on the book of Philippians. But in between that I wanted to preach on the doctrines of grace and we're in that part of the series that Uh, speaks to why the doctrines of grace matter, how these truths affect us as believers. And so we talked about how it affects our worship. The doctrines of grace ignite a humble, reverential, and joyful worship to God and a fervent pursuit of the glory of God in our lives. We've talked about how the doctrines of grace affect how we live in the world, how we understand the world that we live in. We understand why God created the world. We have revealed to us in the scriptures and even in the, the particular doctrines of grace what is wrong with the world and where it's all going. History, as I've said, is theocentric, not anthropocentric. What that means is it's God-centered, not man-centered. And it is Christocentric. That is, all of history, human history, is to the praise of of the glory of the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is focused upon Jesus and the salvation of sinners through His blood. And so what God is doing in history is saving sinners to the praise of the glory of His grace. And we're encouraged as we understand where it's all going that the end of this fallen sinful world is described in Ephesians 1 verse 10 as the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. This will occur when Jesus Christ comes again. And then last week, we began considering how the doctrines of grace affect evangelism and missions. If we understand why God created the world, what went wrong with the world in Genesis 3 with the fall of man what the solution is in Jesus Christ and what the end and goal of all things are, then we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is God has commanded us to proclaim the gospel. Jesus said, As you, the Father, sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In John 17, 18, that's not just a reference to the apostles, but it is a prayer for those who would believe on Jesus through their word, that is the church until the end of the age, and that is why Jesus said in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, and he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So last week, to understand why the doctrines of grace matter in evangelism and missions, I gave you three words, mandate, message, and means. Mandate, message and means. How do the doctrines of grace affect evangelism and missions? First, these truths stir up believers to obey the mandate to preach the gospel. Secondly, these truths keep us faithful to the message of the gospel. And then thirdly, these truths call us to trust the biblical means of evangelism and missions. And so last week, we just considered the first word, mandate, that the doctrines of grace stir up believers to obey the mandate to preach the gospel. Contrary to what people say, the doctrines of grace, the so-called five points of Calvinism, do not hinder evangelism and missions. They stir up evangelism and missions. Why? Well, I gave you two subheadings under mandate. That is because of the glory of God and because of the sovereignty of God. We're stirred up to obedience to the mandate to preach the gospel because of the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. God is saving sinners to the glory of His name. We are those who now are called to join in to worship Him, saved by grace, to give glory to His name. And so now we desire... This message of the gospel to be preached that other sinners might be saved and give glory to God for His grace. And so as I mentioned, John Piper said missions exists because what? Worship doesn't. Because there are other little l lords and there is the devil himself that the world is under the sway of the devil. His power, the scripture says, We desire that sinners will be saved from those false gods and worship the true and living God. We want them to know Him and to worship Him all for the glory of God alone. But also, we're stirred up to obedience to the mandate to preach the gospel because of the sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly ordained not just to save Certain and specific individuals, the doctrine of election before the foundation of the world, but he has sovereignly ordained the means by which they would be saved, and that is through the preaching of the gospel. And so we looked at Acts chapter 18, that the Apostle Paul in Corinth, amid much opposition, did not fear that opposition, did not fear for his life, did not ultimately fear for death itself because God said to him, I am with you, no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. That is a sovereign God who saves sinners saying, I have elect in this city and let my sovereignty and salvation stir you up, Paul, not to fear man, but to preach the gospel. And so we saw how understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation expels fear, fear of man, fear of harm, fear of death. It expels discouragement and doubt. We are to persevere in the preaching of the gospel for God is saving a people who will be called by His name. And so why do the doctrines of grace matter? Well, these doctrines of sovereign grace affect evangelism and missions. They stir us up to obedience to the mandate because we understand the glory of God and the sovereignty of God. Now today we consider the second word, message. Message. Understanding and applying the truths of the doctrines of grace keep us faithful to the message of the gospel. The goal is not just to be stirred to go and preach but to be faithful to preach the true message of the gospel in the grace of God in Christ. There are many who claim to be obedient in evangelism and missions who are preaching a false message and not the gospel of God, not the gospel of grace. Obedience in preaching, proclaiming, and going is only as good as we are faithful to preach and proclaim the right and biblical message, the gospel itself. And the doctrines of grace that I have preached on previously, leading to this point, keep us from straying from that message. Now, let me give you two subheadings under message and how we are now to be faithful to that message. The two subheadings are the gospel and the grace of God. Gospel and grace. The doctrines of grace keep us faithful to the message, because we have a clear understanding of the gospel of God and the grace of God. The doctrines of grace keep us from straying from the gospel. We're never to abandon the gospel. We should not alter it. We cannot modify it. We cannot adjust it. It should never be asked, how can we adjust the message of the church to fit the culture we live in. To do so would be unfaithfulness to the message of the gospel. And so, the doctrines of grace anchor us and keep us faithful to the message, the true message of the gospel of God and the grace of God in saving sinners. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll start here to help us understand how... The doctrines of grace keep us faithful to the message, the gospel of God and the grace of God. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul begins this letter not with commendations, but instead with a warning and astonishment he says I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you he is to be accursed As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The Apostle Paul here speaks of an amazement, or your translation might say he's astonished, he's surprised, that they are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Uh, The late R.C. Sproul called this apostolic astonishment. They were astonished. He was astonished and amazed as an apostle that so quickly this church that received the gospel of grace is now deserting it in some way. The word desert means to change or to alter and thus to really turn away from. Those who distorted the true gospel called their alteration the gospel as well. And so the apostle calls it here a different gospel which is really another gospel. The word here for different and another means another of a different kind. Sometimes we speak of something being different, but it's of the same kind. Well, this wasn't even of the same kind. It called itself the gospel, but he says it's a different gospel altogether. It's another gospel. It's not the true gospel. They're really, he says, distorting the true gospel, the gospel of Christ. It was really an abandonment of the true gospel altogether. Because altering, modifying, or adjusting the gospel is really abandoning the gospel. And this is a serious matter to say the least. So the Apostle Paul gives a stern warning. He says, if we, if I, the apostle, anyone with me, even if an angel were to preach to you a gospel so-called gospel contrary to what we have preached to you he is to be cursed he is to be condemned he is to be damned to hell these are strong words he is to be anathema is the word it is a very strong word and he repeats it again and he puts it in the present tense if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed now there is a very real temptation for some to change the message of the gospel, we can be affected by the world. We can be pressured by others in order to distort the message. That was what was happening here in the church in Galatia. The Apostle Paul even had to correct another Apostle, Peter. Peter, the rock! Because he was led astray by those teaching this false gospel. We see that in Galatians chapter 2 in verses 11 to 16. Look in verse 11. Paul says, but when Cephas, another name for the apostle Peter, when he came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Here we have an apostle opposing another apostle. Paul opposing Peter. Why? He says, for prior to the coming of of certain men from James. These certain men were called Judaizers who taught that, yes, you believe on Christ, but in order to be saved, you must also be circumcised. So they're adding something. It's not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but it's by circumcision as well. And he says, for prior to the coming of these certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing, here's the fear of man, the party of the circumcision. This group that called themselves Christians preaching the gospel. This party of the circumcision. And it says the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And so Paul describes here Confronting Peter for his hypocrisy and not living consistent with the message of the gospel of grace. Adding to, not by his practice, by his actions of disassociating with the Gentiles who were uncircumcised. In some ways saying that their claim that the gospel is Christ plus circumcision is correct. And so he confronts him. This is a very real problem. Listen, if the apostle Peter can be led astray, can we not be tempted as well? Can we not go astray from the message of the gospel of grace? There are many ways that we can go astray, but may I point out one in particular? It has to do with the first point of the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism, namely the doctrine of total depravity. We can be tempted to not preach and proclaim such a message as total depravity. It's not a popular message in the world. It's not even a popular message in many, if not most, so-called churches. Depravity? Sin? We're born in sin? And that sin has so affected every part of our being that we can do nothing to remedy our spiritual condition, that our minds, our affections, our desires, and our wills have been affected by sin so that we are slaves of sin. I mean, aren't people basically born good? Aren't they a blank blank slate, so to speak? No, the Bible says they're not basically good. They're extensively evil. People are rebels against God, and they deserve the eternal wrath and condemnation of God because of their sin. And for maybe even some of you, as I even say that, your ears are itching. Saying, I don't like that message. That's kind of strong. It doesn't fit the feel good world we live in today. And therefore, we can be tempted to alter or abandon that truth. But if we do, there's no gospel at all. Jesus didn't come to improve your self esteem, He didn't come to make you feel good, He didn't come to free you to live how you want to live. He came to rescue sinners, enslaved to sin, and held captive by the devil to do His will. Jesus came to rescue sinners from what their sins deserve, eternal wrath and condemnation in hell. Jesus came to make sinners His own, to love Him, to worship Him, to bow down to Him as Lord and to do His will. That is not a popular message. According to the Bible, sinners want to redefine sin to ease their conscience. They want to deny the reality of sin altogether. Or people want to downplay the effect or the consequences of sin. But any message that distorts the biblical doctrine of sin and the total depravity of the sinner is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so we preach the gospel without compromise. We don't change the gospel to make it more palatable to the world. And we need to be on guard not to fall prey to the fear of man or people pleasing. At the heart of the gospel, the message of the gospel is sin. There has to be the proclamation of bad news if we're to preach the good news. There's nothing about Jesus Christ that is good news. There's nothing about a bloody death on a cross that's good news unless you understand the bad news of our depravity and sin, our rebellion against God and need of a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. The good news. In the words of 1 Timothy 1.15 is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you take out sin, then there's no saving that needs to be done. And all the other points in the five points of Calvinism are meaningless and there is no gospel. If there are no sinners to be saved then there's no need for a Savior, there's no need for Jesus, and there's no gospel at all. But the doctrines of grace call us to be faithful, to proclaim the message of the gospel, the whole gospel, even the bad news of the reality of sin, the extent of our sin, and the eternal consequences of our sin. It's becoming more and more difficult, brethren, to proclaim the doctrine of total depravity and the doctrine of sin without persecution. And that's on a lot of levels. Sometimes that persecution is on a personal level with friends or family or even neighbors. If you proclaim that message, people will despise you. They'll hate you. They'll ostracize you. They'll demean you. But as you begin to define sin even more specifically, as we see it in the world, the abandonment of God's holy creation of marriage between one man and one woman, of God's holy creation of gender. Yes, binary, male and female. The world is more and more opposed to that truth that cannot be altered. And so when you define sin in specific ways, as God's word does, then there will be more and more persecution. The temptation can be, well, let's downplay that or let's alter it or let's at least don't speak about certain things things that the church might be more accepted or maybe people will be churched then if we abandon that no we must not alter abandon the doctrine of sin we must understand the doctrine of sin the doctrine of total depravity why is it so important to understand this and apply it to our evangelism and missions well it's because understanding the condition of the unbeliever helps us understand what the real problem is The problem is bondage and enslavement to sin. The problem is that man in his fallen condition hates the truth, suppresses the truth, and runs from the light. Unbelievers love themselves, live for themselves, and love their sin. And we understand that for we were once there. We dare not downplay the seriousness of the problem. People are totally depraved in every part of their being. But understanding the condition of the unbeliever then helps us to understand the biblical solution. The sinner doesn't need simply to do some rearranging of his life. The goal is not reform, but transformation. Not help, and certainly not self-help, but conversion. The goal is not self-improvement, but salvation. The sinner must be born again. He must be made alive. He must be regenerated. There's the doctrine of irresistible grace and effectual calling. You see how every part of this affects the message that we proclaim. And who can do this? God and God alone. The sinner is described in the Bible. If I can summarize some of the words of how the sinner is described. Enslaved. Enslaved to sin. Hostile toward God. Spiritually ignorant, captive to sin and to Satan. Religious maybe, but only religion is used as a form of idolatry to not serve the true and living God. Spiritually blind, spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And utterly helpless to remedy the situation. So what is the remedy? The grace of God. In Christ Jesus. You see, the doctrines of grace says the message is important. The gospel, the good news, needs to be preceded by the doctrine of total depravity. The law of God must precede the gospel of grace. That people be convicted of their sin, their need of a Savior, to see how utterly desperate they are for their sins to be forgiven and for them to be reconciled to God. How is that? How does it take place? We understand the doctrines of grace. The remedy is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The salvation of sinners is not by religious ritual works, But by the grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, we know this, we hear this, and we say, Amen. That's elementary. That's the message of the gospel of grace. That's what must be proclaimed. It's not by works. Listen, it's not by emotions or emotional responses. It's not by walking down an aisle, it's not by praying a prayer. It's not by some supposed mystical experience or religious ritual. It's not by your birth or family lineage. It's not by your determination to change. Salvation is by the grace of God alone. Turn over just one book of the Bible from Galatians to Ephesians 2. Again, this is not an exposition of these passages. I've done that in other places. I've preached through Ephesians, I've preached through this Ephesians 2 in understanding the doctrine of effectual calling or irresistible grace. But may I remind you of the application of this. In Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, notice the words I have circled in my Bible and highlighted in yellow. In verse 4, rich in mercy because of His great what? Love with which He loved us. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. In verse 7, It speaks of the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then again in verse 8, by grace you have been saved. And it's what? The gift of God. Salvation is by the grace of God. It originates from God's grace. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It is a gift. What sin deserves, what it earns, is death. But salvation is not earned. It's a free gift. It's mean that it's not granted by God because of any obligation. God doesn't owe the sinner anything. It's a free gift. And it's granted to those who actually deserve the exact opposite. Grace is unmerited favor. And we have to understand this. This is what keeps us faithful to the message. It is the gospel of grace because we know that the sinful tendency of fallen human beings is to seek to earn their salvation, to do something that they might boast. And when you talk to people who don't understand the gospel of grace and you begin to talk to those unbelievers who believe there's a God and you'd ask them that evangelism explosion, E.E., question if you're to stand when you die if you stand before God and he would ask you why should I let you into heaven what would be your response the typical response is something like well I've tried to do the best I could do I've lived a life where I believe my good works have outweighed the bad things I've done or I haven't committed these sins and usually speaking of certain major sins when indeed we all have committed those sins in various ways, maybe not in actions, but in thought, in heart. And the tendency is to think, God owes me something. And the tendency then of the church is to begin to, to wane in preaching what should be good news the gospel of grace. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We deserve nothing but eternal condemnation, but God is gracious in Christ this is the message and understanding the doctrines of what grace keep us faithful to proclaim the right message the true message the true gospel the salvation is solely and completely by the grace of God and so we see how the doctrines of grace affects the mandate It stirs us up to obey the mandate to preach the gospel because we desire the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And we know God is sovereign in salvation. He is bringing that about. So we go and we preach the gospel. We proclaim this message. The doctrines of grace keep us faithful to that message because we have a clear understanding of the gospel of God. Good news to sinners. And the grace of God, that salvation is by grace alone. May we never stray from that. Anything that begins to to bring us away, to the left or the right, that we say, no, we're not ashamed of the gospel. We're not ashamed to proclaim the doctrine of total depravity, that we're sinners born in sin, that we are unable to do anything to remedy the situation, that we deserve eternal condemnation because of our sin and our rebellion against God. But God is gracious. And sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But consider the third word, means. Not only mandate message, but means. The doctrines of grace call us to trust the biblical means of evangelism. The doctrines of grace call us to trust the biblical God-ordained means of evangelism now let me ask some questions as we apply this and understand how the doctrines of grace affects this i've preached on i've taught on these things through the years but i want to bring them together here again does the method and means of evangelism matter does it matter how the truth goes out so well we're going to be faithful to the message but does the means by which we proclaim the gospel or the method by which we do it does it matter? Let me show you that the method matters. Turn if you will to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, just turn to the left a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now just stop there. I'm not preaching on that. But Paul isn't saying here that baptism is no longer something that should be done in the new covenant. I've heard people say that. Paul didn't baptize. Baptism isn't an ordinance in the church. That's not what he is saying. As an apostle, a missionary... His primary calling was not to go out and baptize. There would be conversions to Christ. People would believe on Christ. And he wasn't necessarily the one who would baptize them all. Someone else would. Now, he did baptize some, as you read in the context, but not all. And he would say, I'm glad I didn't baptize you all because there was an issue of having camps and division among them. And some who were baptized by Paul would say, well, I am a Paul because I was baptized by him. So that's the context of why he's saying that. But what I want you to focus on is what he says Christ did send him to do, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now this is a very important verse to understand. Paul is saying that he was called by Christ to preach the gospel, but not in a particular manner and not in a particular method, not in cleverness of speech. For if he did that, he says it would void or make void the message of the cross. So, Paul was sent to preach the gospel. He was to evangelize. He was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he is saying there is a way in which he could do that, that would void in essence, the cross and the message of the cross. Not the cross in its power, but the message that he was preaching. It would somehow hinder it. What way would hinder it? Here he says, cleverness of speech. Cleverness of speech. The wisdom of words. Paul is talking about here employing Greek oratory skills and methods of argumentation which were common in the day. Those who use such methods dependent upon those methods to convince people of their arguments. And the method of oratory and argumentation often became the focus rather than the content itself. And so there would be this cleverness of speech, this wisdom of words, this way of using your words that that would convince people of your argument, not on the merits of the content, but on your persuasive powers. The English Standard Version says, Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The biblical message of the gospel, the cross of Christ, can go out in a manner unworthy of the message. Listen to what John Calvin says. By the way, he was a Calvinist, in case you were wondering. John Calvin, a little humor, I'm sorry, (laughs) said this, By these disguises, the simplicity of the gospel was disfigured. Speaking of Greek oratory. And Christ was, as it were, clothed in a new and foreign garb, so that the pure and unadulterated knowledge of Him was not to be found. Farther, as men's minds were turned aside to neatness and eloquent of expression, to ingenious speculations, and to an empty show of superior sublimity of doctrine. The efficacy of the Spirit vanished, and nothing remained but a dead letter. The majesty of God as it shines forth in the gospel was not to be seen, but mere disguise and useless show. So what he is saying? If, people can, if they trust in their ability, their argumentation powers, their persuasive powers to bring people to Christ, Now it becomes focus upon man and your ability to do something that only God can do. Another commentator said this, Paul meant that he did not present his case with artful philosophical sophistry because that would have obscured that astonishing message of the significance of the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul wanted nothing to do with a method that would distract people away from the gospel itself, from Christ himself, from the message of the cross. Another commentator puts it this way. Paul also knew that he was responsible to Christ, not only for what he preached, but for how he preached. Content and method must harmonize. Faulty content is heretical, and so is wrong methodology. Evangelicals too often condemn the former and approve the latter. One more commentator, commentator said this, The fateful preaching of the cross results in men ceasing to put their trust in any human device and relying rather on God's work in Christ. A reliance on rhetoric would cause men to trust in men. The very antithesis of what he, the preaching of the cross is meant to affect. So you see, the method does matter. There's a way in which... The, the gospel can be proclaimed and spoken of that is not consistent with the message itself that even detracts from it. And here it's said to make void the cross of Christ. I mean, can the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? No, not of its inherent power. But the method can distract from and even stand contrary to the message of the cross and the message of the gospel. Now an example of that is if I were to preach the gospel today and I did so by screaming to the top of my lungs as loud as I could possibly say it, that would distract from the message itself. We know the manner in which the gospel is preached matters. The manner of our communication on other occasions matters. Why not in the preaching of the gospel? So, we trust in the God-ordained means. And what we mean by this is when man's methods become paramount, the message of the gospel becomes peripheral at best. When the focus becomes the method, man-made methods and man-made ability, or man's ability, then the cross becomes empty and void. Let me make some statements and don't answer. You just think agree or disagree. The goal is to get the truth out any way that we can. Agree or disagree. Some would say they agree. It doesn't matter how the message goes out as long as it goes out. I remember having a discussion in college among professing believers as we drove down the road and saw where someone painted Jesus or hell on the bridge. Should you do that or not? And some would argue and said, well, what if someone saw that and began to consider the state of their soul? And maybe that leads to them reading the Bible and they're saved. Then isn't it okay to paint Jesus or hell on the bridge? And then some of us said, no, that's breaking the law. That's vandalism. That's not a method worthy of the gospel. So you should have disagreed. (laughs) The second statement. We need to dress up the gospel and make it look good and sound good. The gospel is to look good to the unbeliever. And this is where you have methods and ministries that are more about entertainment than they are about faithfulness to the message and the means that God has provided. Or what that ends up doing, dressing up the gospel often means dressing it down, dumbing it down. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. And you dress it up by looking for so-called celebrities and stars, at least Christian celebrities and stars and and Christian contemporary music people to, to bring attraction to the gospel. We have to make it as appealing as we can. But often making it appealing to the world means selling the gospel. We don't sell the gospel you might be a salesperson and you want your product to look as good as you can. But we don't do that with the gospel. The truth is the truth. We don't have to dress it up. A third statement. If it works, then the method is valid. If it works, the method is valid. Again, Disagree. People will justify by saying, "Well, can God use it? God can use a lot of things, like He used a donkey in the Old Testament." But that doesn't mean we can say, "Well, if it works," because some methods are used in a manner that exalts man and doesn't magnify Christ. Some methods are meant to attract men to a location, not to save their souls. So the the phrase, the end justifies the means, is a dangerous philosophy of ministry and proclamation of the gospel. If it works, do it. Or even worse, if it works, God must be in it, has become the common philosophy of the, the professing church today. And so marketing, consumerism, even manipulation, appealing to the flesh, pragmatism, has become the philosophy of ministry, the means of the church to get the message out, which leads to watering down the gospel, which leads to altering the message of the gospel, which is no gospel at all. Some of you are old enough to remember when the so-called seeker-sensitive movement first started back in the 1980s. And the Really, the seeker-sensitive movement or the seeker-friendly movement was be clever, be informal, be positive, be brief, be friendly, and never use the S word, sin. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Community Church back in that day said this, My generation expects to have their, his senses stimulated to some extent. And so there was a whole model of church that was built on stimulating the senses. They said this, they were committed to, quote, programming that stirs the human emotions. And so emotional dramas and visuals and even humor were used to, quote, get the unbelievers' defenses down. One person who was on the staff of that church at that time explained that listeners, quote, Defenses are lowered when they are communicated to you through artistic forms than when someone is standing up speaking directly at them. They know when someone is speaking that that person is out to persuade them. The arts are much more effective coming through the back door in a more subtle way. The person went on to say, If you give them a musical experience or a dramatic experience, you can go through what we call the back door. And you can somehow get them to emotionally and intellectually respond to some things. And they hardly even know it's happening because their resistance is much, much lower. Listen, that model of doing church and proclaiming whatever message they were proclaiming has really now splintered into all kinds of churches that we see today that have abandoned the gospel. Charles Spurgeon Face some of those similar types of things, maybe not that blatant, but some dumbing down of the message in his day. And he said this, I fear there are some who preach with the view of amusing men. And as long as people can be gathered in crowds and their ears can be tickled and they can retire pleased with what they have heard, the orator is content and folds his hands and goes back self-satisfied. But Paul did not lay himself out to please the public and collect the crowd. If he did not save them, he felt that it was of no avail to interest them. In other words, if he didn't come with the message of the gospel of salvation, then what good was it to attract a crowd in the first place? So he said, unless the truth had pierced their hearts, affected their lives, and made new men of them, Paul would have gone home crying. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? now observe brethren, if I or you or any of us or all of us shall have spent our lives merely in amusing men or educating them or moralizing them. when we shall come to give our account at the last great day, we shall be in a very sorry condition, and we shall have put we shall have but a very sorry record to render for what avail will it be. To a man to be educated when he comes to be damned? Of what service will it be to him to have been amused when the trumpet sounds and the earth and the heaven are shaking and the pits are open wide, her jaws of fire, and swallows up unsaved souls? Of what avail even to have moralized a man if he is on the left hand of the judge and if he still hears, depart ye cursed? You see, brethren, this is of serious consequence. Humor and the gospel don't go together. Clowns in the gospel don't go together. Entertainment and the gospel don't go together. How you talk about sin and the consequences of sin matter. How can someone talk about the cross in a cutesy and clever way? It's the cross that the Son of God became a man to lay down his life. Beaten, bruised, and battered, and crucified on a cross to bear the wrath of Almighty God. You see, man-made methods don't hold the weight of the content of the gospel any more than a milk carton can hold the ocean I think about a time when I saw and this is going back and he's in ministry again when Mark Driscoll was preaching in a t-shirt with a picture of Jesus portrayed as a hip hop disc jockey scratching records on a turntable and that was cool to attract the people It's blasphemy. People say, well, if we can just have a contemporary enough service with a band, with a relevant message to connect people to God, then they'll be reached. No, the God-ordained means is the unadulterated preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the sinner need? The work of God and the word of God. That's why the effectual call, irresistible grace, guards us from going to methods and means that God has not ordained, but instead helps us to trust the God-ordained means. God is the one that must do the work. Remember the effectual call that irresistible grace is the work of God whereby He calls the elect out of darkness into life, out of spiritual death into life. There's nothing I or you can do to accomplish that other than preaching the God-ordained means, the preaching of the gospel, the cross of Christ. The Holy Spirit must enlighten the mind to understand those things savingly. The Holy Spirit must renew their wills and cause them to come to Christ. They must be irresistibly drawn. Man-made methods will not accomplish that. Only the God-ordained means of the unadulterated preaching of the Gospel. God must call the sinner out of darkness into light. They must be born again. They must be made alive in Christ. And the God-ordained means of that work of God, that mighty power of God is through the Word of God, the Gospel. The Gospel must be preached and proclaimed and taught without distraction, without man-made manipulation, without it being dressed up. For to dress it up is really to make it a prostitute. Do you understand how serious this is? The point I'm making is that we must trust the biblical means by which sinners believe on Christ and the salvation, the pure, unadulterated preaching of the gospel. We don't trust our methods. We don't trust our ability to make sinners alive in Christ. You parents know that. When you share the gospel with your children, the only way they come to Christ is by a supernatural work of God convicting the heart, convincing your child that he or she is a sinner and needs a Savior. And so we trust the God-ordained means, the proclamation of the gospel. And if we devise new means and methods or trust our own means and methods, then we abandon the God-ordained means. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. How are sinners born again? How does this mighty work take place? This mighty work of God is through the proclamation of the word of God. And so we are to rest in and trust in the God-ordained means. So all these are implications of the doctrines of grace. This is why it matters. So you see, the doctrines of grace affect evangelism. It stirs us up to obedience to the mandate to preach the gospel because we understand the glory of God and the sovereignty of God in salvation. The doctrines of grace keep us faithful to the message because we have a clear understanding of the gospel of God, good news to sinners. And we have a clear understanding of the grace of God. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the doctrines of grace call us to trust, not in man-made methods and man-made means, but to trust in the biblical means and method of evangelism. May we be faithful not to preach another gospel, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we pray that we would preach Christ crucified, that that would be the heart of our message, that there is a crucified Savior because of the greatness of our sin before a holy God. And I pray, Father, that these truths would not be just something we know about. <clears throat> And understand in our heads, without understanding why they matter. Father, again I pray that these doctrines of grace would ignite in our hearts worship to you, for you alone are worthy of worship. That it would, Lord, affect how we live in a world that has fallen, and understanding what's wrong with the world, and ultimately what the remedy is, and where it's all headed. That we would not, would be discouraged. But understanding you are at work, even in a fallen world, bringing all things to the appointed end for which you created it. And that it is all centered around your glory and the glory of the Lamb slain. And Father, I pray that it would stir us up to evangelism and missions. That it would cause us to be faithful as we, Lord, rejoice in the doctrines of grace. And Lord, that it would cause us to be trusting in your power, your work, in the pure, unadulterated proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would keep us faithful as parents in proclaiming the gospel to our children. Or may we not abandon what you have called us to be in bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and teaching them the gospel, pointing them to Christ. May we not trust in man's methods and world's way of bringing up children god may we see at the heart of our parenting is evangelism that you might be gracious to our children may the gospel be at the center of all of our parenting father we pray that it would be at the center of our church where we pray that we would be faithful we know that there are churches and denominations through the years and even those denominations that began reform that now don't even preach the message of the gospel at all. Father, I pray, may this church, now and until the end of the age, be a light and a beacon of the gospel of grace. Lord, help us to persevere in the midst of a changing world with more of an opposition to the gospel than it seems it has been in our lifetimes. And Father, beyond that, we pray for that to be true of all churches around the world. And God, today we especially think of those not only in Ukraine, but around the world that are so many in rest, but especially in Ukraine. Father, may believers there still be a light of the gospel of grace even in the midst of all the turmoil that is taking place. Lord, you at work in your world, saving sinners to the glory of your name, we pray, use us as you have ordained it to be, the church, to be the pillar and support of the truth and proclaim the gospel until you come. And thank you for the promise that you're with us even to the end of the age. And we pray these things for the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus.